Hi, I'm Joseph Feraldi. I want to thank you for joining us here at Bayside Chapel Online. Our prayer is that today's service will be a blessing to you, that will encourage you in your journey with Jesus Christ, and it will help you to see all that God has in store for you. We would love to hear from you on how God is using this ministry to bless you, and we'd love the opportunity to pray for you. Just send us an email at amen at baysidechapel.org. Remember that you can stay in touch with us at any time. Just visit the App Store and search for our app at Bayside Chapel of NJ. Also, if God is using this ministry to bless you, we'd like to give you the opportunity to partner with us financially. Simply go online to BaysideChapel.org or use the Bayside Chapel app and choose whatever option works best for you. Enjoy today's message. You know, it must be interesting to be the son or daughter of a famous father. I wouldn't know. My dad wasn't particularly famous. He was a good man. He was a hardworking man, supported his family well. He did his best to raise us right and uh, was a follower of Jesus and took us to church. He was a great dad, but he wasn't famous. If he was famous for anything, it was his bad dad jokes that he told that my wife will tell you I've probably followed too much in his footsteps in that regard, though I deny it. I, I don't think I tell bad jokes. Uh, but imagine what it'd be like to be a child of a famous father. I imagine there's some benefits to that in that a powerful father could open some amazing doors of opportunity for you. But there'd also be some challenges that would go with that, especially the challenge of trying to live up to the high expectations everyone would have of you. I can't say anybody had high expectations of me as the son of Nick Ritter, but imagine what it would be like, for instance, to be Martin Luther King III. He was only 10 years old when his famous father, the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., was assassinated. In many ways, he has followed in his father's footsteps. He went to the same college, was a member of the same fraternity, and he has given his life to uh, fight for human rights in a way that most likely would have made his father proud. Or imagine what it'd be like to be the son of Vladimir Guerrero, the Hall of Fame baseball player. Uh, Vlad Guerrero Jr. is now in the major leagues. His dad, a nine-time All-Star, one-time American League Most Valuable Player, hit 449 home runs in his illustrious career. And so the question has always been about Vlad Guerrero Jr. Can he live up to uh, the achievements of his father? And uh, he's off to a good start. You know, several years into his major league career, uh, last year, 2021, he led the majors, or he led his uh, league, rather, in home runs. Uh, this year, he made his first all-star team appearance and was the most valuable player of that game. And so a lot of baseball watchers are thinking, you know what, he's on a trajectory uh, to maybe be as good as his dad. Maybe he'll get into the Hall of Fame, too. Or then there was, of course, John F. Kennedy Jr., the incredibly handsome and charismatic son of the slain president. He was a very accomplished young man, a lawyer and a publisher of a magazine. It was believed that JFK Jr. could uh, probably uh, run for and successfully obtain almost any political office he aspired to. In fact, uh, it was rumored that he was about to uh, put his hat in the ring for the U.S. Senate from the state of New York. 
Tragically, we'll never know what might have come of his political aspirations because he was killed in a plane crash at the age of 38. Strange to think that had he lived, he'd be 62 years old today and maybe by now a former president of the United States. If you want to know what a man is made of, sometimes it helps to know who his father is. And that certainly is true of Jesus, the Son of God. If you want to understand Jesus, you've got to grasp what a special relationship he had with his father, and most of all, how his relationship to his father makes our relationship with God even possible. Today, we're continuing our sermon series that we've called A Son is Given. That phrase comes from the prophecy of of the Old Testament prophet Isaiah. 700 plus years before the time of Jesus, he said, for unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. And in this series, we're asking, well, what kind of son has been given to us in the person of Jesus, that one born to Mary and Joseph and laid in the manger in Bethlehem? Each of the gospel writers has a little different angle on Jesus' identity. Their assessments of him don't contradict, but rather complement each other and taken together, they give us a more complete, multifaceted view of who Jesus is. As we already saw last week, Matthew's emphasis is on Jesus, the royal son. He is the son of David, uh, the the greater descendant of Israel's greatest king, uh, one who is destined to rule the world in a kingdom that will last forever, and one whose rule we should welcome in our own lives here and now. He is the promise-keeping, bondage-breaking, salvation-bringing king we all need. Well, today we're looking at Mark's gospel. And his unique take on Jesus is of Jesus as the uh, most famous, the son of the most famous and important father a son could have. Jesus, the divine son. Jesus, the son of God himself. Our best guess is that Mark's gospel was written about the time that Nero began persecuting Christians in Rome. And it was written to Gentile believers in particular to help persuade them that it's worth it to follow Jesus, even if they have to do so at the risk of their own lives. He is that worthy of our attention and that worthy of our devotion. So Mark tells them the story of Jesus in a way that confirms in episode after episode that Jesus is, in fact, a leader worth following. He is the Son of God. And as is characteristic of Mark, he gets right to his point uh, in the very first verse of the gospel, uh, Mark 1, verse 1, where it says, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. So right out of the box, Mark makes this claim that Jesus is none other than the Son of God. Now, Mark is not alone in making this claim. Other gospel writers will also talk of Jesus in these terms. In Luke's gospel, for instance, the angel comes to Mary and says, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. At the end of John's gospel, he says, but these things are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. So other gospel writers talk about Jesus as son of God, but it's Mark who most strongly emphasizes Jesus' identity as such. 
He makes that claim for him at the very outset of the gospel, and if that's not enough, he then proceeds to tell the story of Jesus in episode after episode as if to confirm that claim. And, and he, he goes next to talk about Jesus' baptism by John in the Jordan River. In Mark chapter 1, verse 9, it says, In those days Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And what a baptism it was. Look what it says in verse 10. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. Jesus sees the heavens torn open. Now, normally, the heavens being torn open is a sign of judgment coming. But in this case, it's a sign of the outpouring of divine favor. And and the Spirit descends on Jesus like a dove, a symbol of, of purity and gentleness. We can't be sure how many people actually saw this happen. We know that Jesus did. It says so right here in verse 10. John the Baptist apparently also saw it because it's reported in in John chapter 1, that, that John the Baptist took this spirit of God descending like a dove on Jesus as a direct uh, identification of Jesus as the Son of God. In John 1, 32, it says, And John bore witness, I saw the spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him, and I have seen and borne witness that this is the Son of God. And as if that's not enough... Mark 1.11 goes on to tell us that then a voice speaks from heaven to affirm that it's so. In Mark 1.11, it says, and a voice came from heaven, you are my beloved son, with you I am well pleased. Note the involvement of the whole trinity here, right? So you've got the son being baptized, you've got the spirit descending on the son, and you've got the father speaking from heaven, affirming, this is my son. With you, I am well pleased. Can you imagine what that moment must have been like for Jesus? Mark shows us Jesus' clear identity from the very beginning of his gospel. The Jesus who was baptized by John in the Jordan River, had the Spirit descend on him like a dove and a voice affirm him as the beloved Son of God. So what I want you to understand is that Mark's gospel is not like it's some mystery story where the identity of the main character has to be guessed. From the very outset, Mark is making it clear to his readers that this is the one about whom others will guess in the story, but we know from the very beginning that he is, in fact, the Son of God. We can be sure of it. We need not hesitate to believe him and and to follow him. Now, as the plot of Mark's gospel unfolds, it has Jesus saying and doing things that basically prove his identity as the Son of God over and over and over again. Who else can do the things he does? Who else would say the things he says? And yet, as obvious as it is to us, Mark's readers, that he is the Son of God, because we've been clued in from the very beginning of the story, it's not at all obvious to the people in the story. They're meeting him for the first time, and and they're trying to figure out who this is, and they're having trouble with it. Why can't they see it? Maybe it's because he seemed too ordinary to them to be the Son of God. You'd expect a grander entrance for the Son of God than to be born in a stable and laid in a manger in Bethlehem. You'd expect him to be raised in a more impressive neighborhood than some working-class home in Nazareth. You'd expect an official endorsement from the rabbis in Jerusalem, but they seem to despise him and, and even plot against him. 
Maybe it's skepticism that keeps us from seeing him for who he really is. Maybe it's our hardness of heart that keeps us from believing. Maybe it's our own stubborn flesh wanting to be in charge that keeps us from bowing our knee to the Son of God. And so at the end of Mark chapter 1, Jesus is teaching in the synagogue at Capernaum, and he casts a demon out of a disruptive man right there in the middle of the synagogue service. And all those present could say was, what is this? A new teaching with authority. He commands even unclean spirits and they obey him. Who is this guy? In Mark chapter 2, Jesus tells a a paralyzed man that his sins are forgiven. And some teachers of the law who are standing there begin to grumble, who can forgive sins but God alone? And Jesus says, all right, so you can see that I have authority to forgive sins. You know what I'll do? I'll just heal him. Boom. He can walk. They should have seen it. The proof was right in front of their eyes, but they would not believe. Evil spirits had no trouble seeing it. They knew who he was and were terrified of the power he had over them. And so in Mark chapter 3, it says, And whenever the unclean spirits saw him, they fell down before him and cried out, You are the Son of God. In some places, they go on to say, Have you come to torment us before our time? Leave us alone. Everything in Mark's gospel points to the truth of Jesus' identity. But even Jesus' own men struggled to understand it. And so it tells us in Mark chapter 4 that as Jesus calmed the storm on the Sea of Galilee, what do they say about him? It says in Mark 4.41, and they were filled with fear and said to one another, who is this then that even the wind and the sea obey him? Not even his own guys quite got it yet. In Mark chapter 6, He's in the synagogue in Nazareth, teaching in his own hometown, teaching people among whom he grew up. And the people who knew him from boyhood were astonished and said, where did this man get these things? What is the wisdom given to him? How are such mighty works done by his hands? This is that squirt Jesus who grew up in, you know, Mary and Joseph's home. His brothers and his sisters are still with us. Who does he think he is doing all this stuff? Kind of reminds me of um, when I was 27 years old and I was a candidate to become the senior pastor of a church in Pennsylvania at the ripe old age of 27. And so uh, I went to this church to go through the process of interviewing and preaching and all the things you do to become a pastor of a church. And and, uh, lo and behold, there was a couple in that church who knew me from the time I was just a little kid. Uh, They had come from Chicago and the church where I had grown up. In fact, they had been my youth leaders in junior high. And when Bill and Ruth heard that Dave Ritter was a candidate to be the pastor of their church, they said, what? That can't be. That pimply-faced, chubby seventh grader? No way. Well, they quickly came around and were terrific supporters, but it was quite a shock to their system to think of me like that. Can you imagine the people of Nazareth? They're struggling. They, They knew him when he was just a little kid. And here he is talking this way and doing these things. Why couldn't they, why couldn't they grasp it? He, um, he goes on then in, in the later part of chapter 6 to walk on water in the middle of the night and climb in the boat with his disciples. And what does it say of, of his own men? Mark six fifty one. they were utterly astounded for they did not understand, but their hearts were hardened. 
By the time you get to chapter 8, Jesus is getting a little impatient with their their failure to understand who he is. And so he presses them regarding their understanding of his identity. And he says to them, hey, who do people say that I am? And they said, well, some people say you're John the Baptist and other people say you're one of the prophets. And Jesus said, well, what about you? Who do you say that I am? And finally, it's Peter who says, you are the Christ. The disciples who have followed him for the last three years are finally beginning to figure it out. But those who should have had the easiest time understanding who he was should have understood and recognized him as the son of God because they were the Bible scholars and they they studied the prophets for clues about Messiah's identity. They should have seen it most quickly of all, but they were the ones who were becoming increasingly upset with him. And so when Jesus showed up at the Passover and, and began driving out merchants and money changers from the temple, The chief priests and scribes and elders came to him in Mark 11 and they said, by what authority are you doing these things? Who gave you authority to do them? And Jesus could have easily said, I do them by the authority of my father in heaven. But he chose not to because they should have already figured it out by now, by the miracles he did and by the way he taught with such authority. It's hardness of heart that keeps people from seeing that Jesus is the Son of God. It doesn't matter how much proof you offer some people, they're just not going to give him his rightful place. Like the parable that Jesus once taught. It was a parable about some tenants who who were renting a field from a landowner, growing grapes. At harvest time, the landowner wanted to collect the rent, so he sent messengers to come and, and collect the rent. And what did they do? They killed all the messengers that the landowner sent. So the landowner says, I know, they'll at least respect my son. I'll send him to collect the rent. And what did they do? They killed the son too. And what Jesus was saying to the leadership of Israel is that's what you've always done. You've killed the prophets and you're going to kill me too, the son. Some people are so resistant to acknowledging the authority of the son of God that they would rather nail him to a cross then bend their knee to him. And so at his trial, the high priest comes right out and asks him, are you the Christ, the son of the blessed? And Jesus simply says, I am. And though it was utterly true, and though he had offered ample proof of it, they still would not accept his claim. They charged him with blasphemy and decide that he must die. And so they persuade Pilate to nail him to a Roman cross. Who could have imagined that that is how mankind would treat the Son of God when he came? And though Israel's religious leaders couldn't see it, Mark has this climactic moment in chapter 15, the next to the last chapter of the whole gospel, when it's the Gentile centurion, a Roman soldier, who oversaw Jesus' execution watching how Jesus conducted himself as he died, he's the one who draws the conclusion that we have known from the beginning of the gospel but has been missed by everybody in every chapter since. It's the centurion who stood facing him, saw that in this way he breathed his last, and he said, truly, this man was the son of God. For unto us a child is born, Unto us a son is given, and Mark's gospel, emphasizing his divinity, stresses the fact that Jesus is the son of God. Now, that's a lot to get your head around. That's uh, way bigger than saying that Martin Luther King III 
followed in his famous father's footsteps. It's more than saying that Vladimir Guerrero Jr. is likely to end up in the Hall of Fame like his famous father. That's a way bigger deal than to say that JFK Jr. might have one day sat in the Oval Office his dad once occupied. To say that Jesus is the Son of God is to make several vitally important claims about him. The first is this. To say that Jesus is the Son of God is to claim that he is in eternal relation with God. He is in eternal relation with God. John affirms that in his gospel. He says, in the beginning was the word. The word is how John describes Jesus before his birth. In the beginning was the word. And the word was with God and the word was God. He was with, he was in the beginning with God. Jesus' relationship with God the Father goes way deeper than my relationship with Nick Ritter. You know, I became Nick Ritter's son on October 3rd, 1956. Now, it could be argued that, you know, I became his son nine months before that, when I was conceived in the womb, but I made my first appearance as Nick Ritter's son anyway on October 3rd of 1956. But Jesus has always been in relationship with God the Father. He's not just a son of God, he is the son of God. In fact, he is God the eternal son the second member of the Trinity, and a partner with God in the creation of all things, it says in John chapter 1. As God the Son, he shares in all of the divine attributes and, and deserves all the glory that belong to the Godhead, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And that's why Jesus could make such incredible claims as, I and the Father are one. Or the Father is in me, and I am in the Father. He has enjoyed from all eternity the closest possible relationship with God the Father and God the Holy Spirit. And that's why in one of his darkest moments, the one he turns to is the one he has always known. In the Garden of Gethsemane, at Gethsemane knowing that the cross awaits him, he prays, Abba, Daddy, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but yet what you will be done without a doubt in his mind about his father's loving purpose in it all, he submits to the agony of the cross, giving his life of infinite worth as the only satisfactory payment for the sins of all mankind. And even as he breathes his last, he entrusts himself into his father's care, saying, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Jesus is and always has been in perfect relation with the heavenly father. He is the son of God, God the eternal son. Beware of anybody who tries to tell you he's anything less than that. The Jehovah's Witnesses, for instance, will tell you that Jesus is not God. Only the father is God. Jesus is, is the first of God's created beings. In fact, he was uh, the archangel Michael. And then when he was sent to earth to become a baby, that's when he became Jesus, the son of Joseph and Mary. And it was only at his baptism that he was anointed to be the Messiah. So there's only Jehovah the Father, God the Father. Uh, there is no God the Son. Uh, there is a Son of God who is Jesus, a very important Son of God at that, but he is not God himself. A pastor once heard a Jehovah's Witness tried to explain all this, and he said to him, uh, let me just ask you one question. 
Would you agree with me that Jehovah is the eternal father? To which the Jehovah's Witness said, yes, Jehovah is the eternal father. And the pastor said, well, how can he be an eternal father unless he has an eternal son? You can only be an eternal father if you have a son from all eternity. Jesus is the son of God. He is in eternal relation with God. Now here's the second claim that we can make about him. And that is that he is the perfect revelation of God. He is the perfect revelation of God. You know, most sons bear some resemblance to their fathers. I have a friend, Jay. I've known him for probably 30 years or more. And I recommended to my son that, that he go have lunch with Jay to talk about some ministry stuff. And so Josh and Jay had a lunch together. And then when their lunch was done, Jay called me. He said, I just had a great lunch with your son. I got to tell you, he's just like you. He's got your mannerisms. He says things the way you would say them. And I went home and I told Diane that. She said, oh, no, he's a mix. He's not just like you. I said, well, I know he's not just like me, but, uh, and, and he's funny. He's got a sense of humor, Diane said. <laughs> you know, I guess unlike me and my, my dumb dad jokes, uh, Josh is a funny guy. There's no question about it. But, but the, the point is that, you know, sons are probably going to resemble their fathers, at least to some degree or other. But there's no son who is an exact representation of his father, except for Jesus. When you get to know Jesus, he shows you exactly what God the Father is like. Remember, as God the Son, he shares all of the same attributes and deserves all the same glory as God the Father and God the Holy Spirit. And so John could write in John 1.14, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us and we have seen his glory. Glory as of the one Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John is saying, when Jesus came, we saw the glory of the Father in him. He goes on a couple of verses later to say, no one has ever seen God, that is, no one has ever seen God the Father, but God the one and only, God the only begotten Son, who is at the Father's side, has made him known. In the person of Jesus, God put on human flesh so that we could See, in a form, we can understand exactly what God is like. And because in Jesus, God the eternal son took on human flesh, Jesus was, uh, when Jesus was asked by one of his men, you know, show us the father. Jesus' response was, uh, whoever has seen me has seen the father. Don't you believe that I'm in the father and the father is in me? The words I say to you aren't just my own. Rather, it is the father living in me who is doing his work. If you want to know what the father is like, look at Jesus. He doesn't just resemble the father. He is absolutely like the father. He absolutely reveals the father. He speaks the words the Father himself would speak. He does the works the Father himself would do. So much so that the writer of Hebrews says, he is the radiance of God's glory and the exact imprint of his nature. Or as Paul puts it in Colossians 1, he is the image of the invisible God. Someone has described Jesus as God's greatest visual aid. If you want to understand what God is like, look at Jesus. He is the image of the invisible God, the exact imprint of his nature. The third century theologian Origen described it this way. He, he told of a village 
that he said, imagine a village that has a huge statue in the center of the village. Now, the, the statue is so huge, so overwhelming, that when you stand at the bottom of the statue, you can't quite make out what it is. It's just overwhelmingly big. And so, someone finally miniaturized the statue so that everyone could see the person it honored. Origen said that's what God did in his son. Paul tells us that Christ is the invisible icon, the invisible, or the visible image of the invisible God. In Christ, we have God's perfect revelation of himself. Jesus is the son of God. He is in eternal relation with God. He is the perfect revelation of God. And the third claim we would make about him is that he alone provides our redemption to God. He alone provides our redemption to God. I guess it speaks to just how hideous our sin must be that it required a sacrifice so great to ransom us and bring us back into a right relationship with God. That Jesus had to be a man in order to represent humanity, but he had to be God in order to adequately atone for our sins by giving his life of infinite worth on the cross in our place. And that's why when Jesus was explaining to Nicodemus the way of salvation, he said, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. The way to eternal life is by trusting in the Son and the work he, he would do to atone for our sin. Paul, uh, John goes on a few verses later to say, whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. Salvation is the result of believing in the Son God sent to save us from our sin. Condemnation is the result of not believing in Jesus, the Son of God. Or as Paul would put it in Colossians 1, in God's beloved Son, we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Similarly, the Apostle John writes, in this is love. In, in this love of God, rather, was made manifest among us, that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. What difference does it make to us that Jesus is the son of God? It makes all the difference in the world. If Jesus isn't the son of God, his sacrifice wouldn't be enough to save us. If we don't believe in him as the son of God, then we forfeit the eternal life he made possible for us. And so, again, John says in 1 John 5, and this is the testimony God, that God gave us eternal life, and this life is in his what? In his son. Whoever has the son has life. Whoever does not have the son of God does not have life. Bono is the lead singer of the rock group U2, and he is a professing believer in Christ, he put it very well one time when he said, I think a defining question for a Christian is, who was Christ? And I don't think you're let off easily by saying he was a great thinker or a great philosopher because he actually went around saying he was the Messiah. 
That's why he was crucified. He was crucified because he said he was the son of God. So in my view, he either was the son of God or he was nuts. Forget rock and roll messianic complexes. This is like Charles Manson kind of delirium. And I find it hard to accept that millions and millions of lives for 2,000 years have been changed by some nutter. That's what it really comes down to. Who was the Christ? If you see him as a man who lived a good life and died a tragic death, that will do you no good. That Jesus isn't worth believing in. The scripture says if that's who Jesus is to you, then you're still condemned in your sin. But if you're prepared to say he is the son of God who died for your sin and rose from the dead, you can be saved. And this is the testimony that God gave us eternal life. And this life is in his son. Whoever has the son has life. Whoever does not have the son of God does not have life. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. Let's bow our heads together. As we're in an attitude of prayer, I just want to uh, let you process this a little bit. I want you to, to process that question. Who is Jesus to you? Merely a good man who died a tragic death? Or is he the son of God who gave his life of infinite worth to atone for your sin? The Bible says that you can know that you have eternal life. Do you know that? And you say, I don't know how anyone can know that. I, I don't know that I've been good enough to have eternal life. But you see, that response misses the whole point. We already know you're not good enough. I'm not good enough. None of us are good enough. We've all sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We all deserve his judgment. That's why Jesus came. Jesus came to do for us what we couldn't do for ourselves. The very Son of God was sent to become a man to represent humanity. But as God the Son, his life was of infinite worth so that that life could pay for all of our sin. He gave that life for you and me. He rose from the dead to offer new life to us. The question is, have you believed in him? The scripture is so clear. If you believe in the name of the Son of God, you can know that you have eternal life. And maybe you're here today and you're thinking, I I've never been so sure about that as I am in this moment. Maybe this is your moment to tell God, I believe. I believe. I trust in Jesus, the Son of God, who gave his life for me. I trust in him to be my rescuer from sin and my leader for life. In the, in the quiet of this moment, you can, you can reach out to him in prayer and just say, Lord, I believe. I put my faith and trust in Jesus. I want Jesus to come into my life, to be my savior, to be my Lord. 
If that's the desire of your heart this morning, and, and this is maybe the first time you've wrestled with it in quite this way, and, and the first time you've come to this conclusion, to say, I believe. I believe not just in a, a Jesus, I believe in Jesus, the Son of God, who was given for me. If that describes you this morning, would you slip your hand up so I can pray for you? Thank you. Thank you. Anyone else? Thank you. Lord, we thank you today for Jesus, your divine son, who came to this earth so that we can have eternal life. And I pray for those who have come to that point of belief today, those who have have said, you know what, Jesus is more than just a man. He is the son of God. And I pray that on the basis of, of their faith, that they could leave with the assurance of your word that says, he who believes has eternal life. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know that you have eternal life. Lord, help us all to realize it's not dependent on us, it's not dependent on our being good enough, it's dependent on what Jesus did for us. And for that, we are grateful. We are grateful that you loved us and sent your Son, in whose name we pray, amen. Amen. 